Well, uh, now is the point in the service when uh, it's a great moment to stretch your legs, get up, and quickly grab your Bible. If you haven't got it already in front of you, uh, quickly grab it. Uh, We're going to need to turn open to the book of Micah, because today we're starting a new series studying the book of the prophet Micah. Uh, So find your Bible, quickly run and grab it, stretch your legs while you're at it. And if you're already, you already have it in your hands, you can open up to Micah chapter 1. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 1. We're starting a new sermon series in the book of Micah. And today, I wanted to, to, to kick things off by jumping straight in. I want you to turn your eyes with me to Micah chapter 1, verse 8. I think it's a really helpful introductory for us. Micah writes, chapter 1, verse 8, Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Why? For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. An incurable plague spreading. Ah, this, is, this is the prophet for today, isn't it? Uh, Mike is talking about living with a plague. And what type of plague is this? What What is going on that is making him so upset, weeping and wailing and howling like a jackal? Uh, Well, we're going to get to this uh, in a little bit. Uh, But first, I want to introduce you to the prophet Micah himself. Uh, Who is this? What's going on? Where are we even up to in the Bible? Well, the story so far... The Bible starts with creation. God creates the world and he creates mankind. Adam and Eve, who don't act faithfully towards the God who made them, but sin. They disobey and sin. And they bring judgment on themselves and they bring death into the world. Now, as we keep reading the Bible, we get to Genesis 12, where we see, incredibly, God doesn't leave the world to death and decay. No, but he gives a great promise to Abraham that through Abraham and through his descendants, through the great nation that's going to come from his people, God is going to bring blessing. Not curse, not just death to sinners, but blessing to all the families of the earth. As we keep reading the Bible, we see this starts to be fulfilled. Abraham has lots of descendants, And not only that, but God rescues them from slavery in Egypt and brings them out, following the prophet Moses, to be a people, to be their own nation, God's nation. And he gives them instructions about how to do this. He gives them a land that they can inhabit and possess, the promised land. As we keep reading the Bible, we read in 1 Samuel, kind of more and more of these promises are coming together. We see kings on the throne ruling over God's people, representing God's rule. 
over the people. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see a great promise made to King David, kind of at really the high point of, of all these promises coming together of the Old Testament, where God says to David, one of your sons will reign on the throne over this kingdom forever. God's building up the expectation of God's people, what he is going to do to bring blessing to the world, to overcome the curse that's introduced in the world because of Adam and Eve's sin. And sadly, as we keep reading the Bible, things don't start looking better and better, but from this point, things start falling apart. The kingdom is fractured. It splits into two halves. God's kingdom has two rival kings, two rival nations. It's set up separately. We can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. A broken kingdom. And one after another, the kings that lead these kingdoms ignore God and the people follow along their rulers and they are unfaithful. And it's a tragic picture of God's people, just like in the Garden of Eden, ignoring God's rule and disobeying him. That's the story so far. Uh, It's been about 200 years since the kingdom split when we meet the prophet Micah. Have a look at Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, we don't get a whole lot of background info about Micah. We don't get his life story. What do we get? We're told when he lived during the reign of these three kings of Judah, that's the southern kingdom after they were split, these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which puts his prophecy, his ministry, during about the years 750 BC to 700 BC, sometime about then, covering events that happened during that period. And he prophesies the word of the Lord that came to him. He's seen a vision, a vision about Samaria, and Jerusalem, they were the two capital cities of these two kingdoms. Uh, if you want to look at it on the map, here it is. Uh, the red kingdom, Israel, to the north with its capital, Samaria, and the southern kingdom, Judah, with its capital, Jerusalem. And Micah is prophesying about both these states, about both these cities, about both groups of people. And he comes from a little town somewhere in the western foothills of Judah, the southern kingdom, called Moresheth, and it's Moresheth Gath, we later learn. It's not the other Moresheth. It's the one that was near the town of Gath. So he doesn't come from the city. He comes from a smaller village, and he prophesies about these cities, prophesies to these cities and to their rulers. And what does he prophesy about? Well, he sums it up, his prophecy, his message, he sums up in one sense in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8, here's what he says. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might 
to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Micah's message is one of reminding the people, reminding the nations of their sin, reminding them that they are accountable to God, reminding them that God isn't a God who stands by idly and condones sin. It is a God who's grieved by sin, who's offended by sin, and who acts to judge sin. And that's what we see in Micah chapter 1. That's what we see. What is Samaria's plague? What's the, the evil that's overtaking these kingdoms? Well, let's keep reading. After his weeping and wailing, let's keep reading. Chapter 1, verse 10. Micah says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Za'ana will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief. Why? What is coming? What is the problem? Because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath, the town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. What is the plague that's coming, what is spreading throughout the northern kingdom, through Samaria, through the southern kingdom, Judah, even to the very gates of Jerusalem itself? What is coming? It is God's judgment, disaster from the law. And it's coming in the form of a conqueror. It's coming in the form of exile. The foreign nation, Assyria, is ravaging the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Led by her kings, Tiglath-Pileser, Shamanasa, Sargon, Assyria is bringing destruction to God's people as judgment, disaster from the Lord. This is the plague that brings Micah to weep and wail. This is why he's howling like a jackal, moaning like an owl. He's upset. He's grieving the pain and disaster that's coming. And he, and he talks about this in poetic ways and he, and he mentions uh, a whole lot of towns, mostly from the region where he was, where he came from. Uh, some smaller towns around there as well as mentioning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, but 
Uh, often he, he's doing it in a poetic way. These towns often have words that sound similar to them that tie in with the message. Uh, towns that sound like conqueror. Towns that sound like deceptive. And if, if you're reading your Bible, uh, lots of them will have footnotes that point this out. He's highlighting to the people the disaster that's coming on them, the pain they can expect. And particularly, he's reminding them of the reason this disaster is from the Lord. Now, why? This presents us with a question, why is it that Samaria and Jerusalem are facing this judgment? What have they done to deserve this? Well, if you've read through the whole of the Old Testament up to this point, you would have no doubts as to why, uh, because it happens consistently and blatantly, the people's unfaithfulness. Uh, but I've skipped over the bits in, cha- in chapter 1, verses 2 to 7, where Mike himself explains it. So let's look there now. Uh, Micah chapter 1, verse 3. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? What particularly is God incensed by? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. That's a frightening image, isn't it? When God confronts the people, when God steps down to the world and his presence is so destructive, the mountains melting before him, valleys splitting apart. It's no wonder that Micah is howling and wailing. What is it that he's come to confront? Well, it is the sin of his people, and particularly, it is the sin of idolatry. Did you notice that? It's Samaria, it's Judah's high place, Jerusalem. It's not just that Jerusalem's on a mountain, the high place is a reference to the cultic worship practices of the surrounding nations. It's their idols in verse 7, their temple gifts, the images and the wages of prostitutes are probably here referring to cult prostitution, part of the religious practices again of the surrounding nations, part of their idolatrous practices. Instead of worshipping Yahweh, the Lord, faithfully, The Lord who said, don't make an image of me. God's people, both 
kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, have fallen into the trap of worshipping idols, of seeking to find something physical, something tangible they can lay their hands on to direct their worship towards. Now, we don't have the habits of frequenting high places, of having carved idols in today's day. Not much anyway. But we do still face a problem of idolatry, don't we? Our culture is one that embraces the idea of idolatry. We still are part of a, a people and a nation who look for tangible things to direct their worship towards. Our people place on created things the meaning and value, and they look for purpose and significance in created things that should only be found in our Creator. We, we look, don't we, for our personal well-being and safety, our security, our future prosperity to the tangible money that we can hold in our hand or more or less these days, we can look at the number in our bank balance on our phone to be reassured that we'll be able to negotiate the future. We'll be able to survive what comes. People look for their significance and, and particularly their future significance in their health, in their well-being, their fitness, their beauty. People want to feel and touch something that we can we can trust and know that we are meaningful and have significance in the world. And more often than not, we turn to our family, the next generation that's going to carry on after we're gone, that we know we've left something behind. And people even, we, we even pursue that experience of transcendence, helping us get beyond the day-to-day to, to get a sense of something bigger by engaging in those wow moments, don't we? we get TV show after TV show, ad after ad that sells us that wow can be found in food experiences, in travel, in that concert, in sex tangible things that we can look to, that we can latch onto. But again and again, these things that aren't bad in themselves, we find that we're drawn to invest in them. Some of the honor, the respect, the dependence, the satisfaction, the hope, that can only be sustained by our eternal 
creator God. And we find this is the, the flavor of our culture. It's our world around us. But it's also something that shapes us, doesn't it, as, as God's people, as the church. We find ourselves drawn into this way of thinking. What is it for you? What do you find yourself most drawn to? What are you most hungry for, greedy for? And perhaps during this time of lockdown, of increased restrictions, what are you most frustrated by not being able to, to get to? Does it reveal maybe what you are seeking too much in? What is most important for you? What are you turning to at this time for comfort? If you can't get to those things, where are you looking to sustain your hope and comfort? Is it in the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who says we are significant because we are made in his image, because he has chosen us to be part of his family forever, because he uses us in his plans and purposes for the world? Are you turning to him? Or are you turning to those physical, tangible things of the world? There's things that are good in themselves, but ultimately are temporary, are fallible, are powerless in the face of eternity. How should we respond to the idolatry of our age, the idolatry that tempts even our own hearts? Well, I think Micah gives us a wonderful example here. What does he do? He wails and weeps. And he howls like a jackal and moans like an owl. And he also goes about barefoot and naked. He's not just wailing and weeping as though all is lost. He's expressing repentance. And he does this as a prophet. I'm sure he lives out a repentant life personally. But he also does it as a prophet on behalf of his people, showing them, leading the way in how to respond. As we see idolatry around us, it is right that we mourn the fact that our world is gone so wrong, so far from living in faithfulness to the God who made them. It's right that we should wail at this. It's right that we should express our own repentance as we see it encroaching in our own lives. And especially as we know the judgment of God is coming on all the idolatry of the world. We should be grieved to see the idolatry and know where it leads to. God's anger and judgment. Do you mourn idolatry? Maybe you don't howl like a jackal. I'm not exactly sure what a jackal howling sounds like. Uh, maybe you can, maybe you can ask some uh, four-year-olds. Uh, 
They're pretty good at, uh, at giving some howling. But exactly what it sounds like isn't the point, isn't it? It's, it's, it's are we reflecting that attitude of recognizing the wrong, of wanting to turn away from it? Being grieved and saddened by this ongoing practice that grieves and saddens our God. Well, as we, as we read Micah, as we read about this coming judgment on the people of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, we read this message of judgment, God's justice, not allowing idolatry to go on unchecked. And as we read this, it's, it's right that we're reminded of what happened 700 years later. When the Lord again comes down from his dwelling place. When he comes down again because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. And he comes down and he brings disaster again to the gates of Jerusalem. But this time, not on the idolaters. But he brings disaster and destruction on his own son. It is the perfect image of God that is destroyed. And incredibly, at this point, in doing so, as God pours out his anger toward idolatry onto his own perfect image-bearing son, it's here where we see most clearly what Yahweh is like. We see that he is a God of justice that doesn't let sin go unchecked. But we are also reminded that he is a God of mercy, that he is a God that makes a way for idolaters. Idolaters like those in Micah's day, idolaters like we see in our day, idolaters even like you and I, that God makes a way for us to be saved from the destruction our idolatry deserves. He pours out his anger on his son that we might be forgiven. If you know the idolatry of our age and the idolatry of our own hearts, do you also know the mercy of God that he shows to us in his son Jesus? Jesus taught before he died, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Micah mourns the idolatry of his age. He mourned the coming destruction. He repented, barefoot and naked, mourning, wailing, 
howling. Are you mourning, wailing, howling, repenting? Because the good news of Jesus is that for those who repent, there will be comfort. There is hope. There is mercy. And we're going to read more and more about this in Micah. We read more about God's justice and judgment, but we also will get to see more of God's mercy over the coming chapters. That's a great message that Micah shares with us, a message of justice and mercy. All right, in light of this, I want to invite you to pray with me a prayer of confession where we remind ourselves that we are not right with God by nature, but we are in fact sinners, that we do need his mercy. And so uh, would you pray with me this prayer? Let me lead you in this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you've washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you and serve you as we should. Please forgive us our sins. Renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ, in whom alone is our salvation. Amen. Friends, the message of the Bible is clear, that our Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificed once for all to bear the sins of many. God therefore forgives those who look to his Son for mercy. That's great news. And we know that it is only in Jesus that we have this hope. And so as we get towards the end of our service, I'm going to invite you to sing again and rejoice in this wonderful truth that we do find hope and mercy in Jesus, only in his name.